We're in the third week of Advent, and we are going to talk about joy to the world. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Isaac Watt wrote Joy to the World in 1719, and those are the lines in the second stanza of the song. And those lines call us to repeat, to say over and over, joy to the world because the Lord has come. If Paul had written the song, he might have said it like this, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And while Watts wrote joy to the world to point to the advent of Christ, joy to the world, the Lord has come. He based the song on Psalm 98, which is decidedly not about the Messiah. It's not about the advent of the coming Lord, but rather it's about the coming deliverance when God judges the earth. Let's read Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king. The Lord, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Isaac Watts understood that biblical joy is rooted in the deliverance provided by God. Now God's deliverance comes in many forms. It comes in the form of rescue from danger or from trouble. It comes in the form of provision, in forgiveness. It comes in the form of healing. But principally, what is meant when we say that God, we say God's deliverance is what we call, what we know is God's salvation through faith in the work of Christ. I want to look at three aspects of biblical joy today. First, I want to look at joy in God's deliverance. I want to then look at joy in judgment. And then look at joy in trouble. And then conclude with what biblical joy is. Let's pray. Father God, may we gain a deeper understanding from your word about what joy is. About what it means when we say joy to the world. About what it means when we say that uh, the Lord's salvation has come and we're joyful about that. Help us to know what that means, and then help us, Father, to express biblical joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Joy of God's deliverance. Well, the church was born at Pentecost. That was 40 days after the resurrection of Christ. Peter and the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter stood up and preached a sermon about who Jesus Christ is and what he did and the need for Uh, people to come to him in order to be saved. When the church was born, it was quite a litter. There were 3,000 people who were born again that day. 
and boy, there was joy. We've often talked about Acts 2, 42 through 47 here. And I'm not going to quote the passage, but in the passage, it says that the believers were sharing everything that they had in common. They were sharing meals. They were sharing goods. Some of them were selling property and goods in order that other people might have their needs filled. And they were praising God, and they had goodwill with all the people. And they were glad. The word glad or gladness in that passage means great joy expressed with exuberance. The joy there was obvious, and it was palpable. People were joyful at being together and in sharing what they had with one another and in sharing around their newfound common salvation. Then persecution came. The new believers may have had favor with the people, but if they ever had favor with the religious leaders, it didn't last. The catalyst for the persecution came from a speech that Stephen, the deacon, gave before the Jewish religious leaders, a decidedly not joyous bunch of people. That speech angered them because it showed who Jesus Christ is and it showed his primacy and it showed that he was the only way to come to salvation. And they stoned Stephen to death for that speech. And that brings us to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Chapter 8 begins with Saul approving the killing of Stephen and then speaks of a persecution that drove believers out of Jerusalem people who had been saved at Pentecost. And others were scattered too. This passage tells us some of, some of those who were driven out of Jerusalem went to Judea and Samaria, and they proclaimed Christ. One particular believer who fled Jerusalem was the deacon Philip. Philip began proclaiming Christ in Samaria, doing all kinds of miracles. People were being healed and people were being delivered from demons. Later in the chapter, it says, that, of course, that people were being saved. There was great joy, as the passage says, in that city at the deliverance of God. And Philip is sent to another place, Acts eight twenty six through 39. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Arise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her uh, her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? 
And he invited Philip to come and come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he is led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this, his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. This time, deliverance came in the desert to one person, this Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch. He asked Philip about the scripture he was reading, and Philip leads the Ethiopian to Christ. And after the Ethiopian was baptized, Philip, to use a Star Trek turn, got beamed away. But the important part is that the Ethiopian, having received Christ, goes on his way rejoicing. He experienced God's deliverance and was joyful about it. Some of the believers in Jerusalem fled to a place called Antioch. Acts 11, 19 through 23. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Hellenists are Greek, uh, Greek uh, culturally Greek people, preaching the Lord Jesus. And at the hand of the Lord was, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this <coughs> came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Same word as rejoiced and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. People became, came to believe in Christ there in Antioch too. But now it was Gentiles who were believing. Because Gentiles were being saved, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to see if this was true. They were wondering, can Gentiles be saved too? It was not only true, but Barnabas saw the grace of God, and he rejoiced, he had joy, that even the Gentiles were being in being delivered. So in all of these events, and many others through the book of Acts, exuberant joy and rejoicing is expressed. The joy was the dancing of the heart, and it may have even been the dancing of the feet. And all what God was doing in the deliverance and of all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, sometimes the joy was individual, like the Ethiopian. Sometimes it was groups of believers expressing their joy together. The joy was open, and it was openly expressed. The reason for the joy was that God was working, delivering people, saving them. And there's another side to this joy coin. David expressed the joy of being saved because for a time he lost that joy. In Psalm 51, David expresses his guilt and remorse over his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah to cover the adultery and the child that was produced by it. David said in the psalm that his sin is ever before him. 
This was severe guilt over severe sin. And this guilt that was produced in David is probably something we've all have experienced from time to time. The joy we have in our salvation is gone because of unconfessed sin. The salvation's not gone, but the joy of that salvation has left us due to our sin. David asked God in the psalm to wash him and to cleanse him from his sin. And once he confessed, once we confess, once we agree with God that we have sinned, we have forgiveness and the joy returned. This is what David says, Psalm 51, 7 through 13. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Rejoice to me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David repented. He sought God's forgiveness and forgiveness was given. And it was then that David could have the joy of his salvation. It was then that he could ask not only for forgiveness, but also ask for a spirit that was willing to walk with God. An important byproduct of this is that David could then teach others about God's ways. Those who, who too had lost the joy of their salvation due to sin. Those joyless sinners will return to God with their joy restored. I've told you before here um, how I got saved. I want to tell you now uh, about how some of that joy that I had at salvation was expressed. In my path to believing, I had come to know a young woman, a believer, who demonstrated her faith by her words and her actions, and she invited me to church. And I started going there, because she was going there. When God saved me, I knew that the very first thing that I had to do was to go to church that next Sunday. At the end of the sermon, the pastor gave an an invitation. And a bit like the Ethiopian, I rushed up to the front. And I almost exclaimed, shouting to the pastor that I wanted to get baptized. I didn't actually say this, but I thought about it. There was a baptistry right there. I said, look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? (laughs) I got baptized the next week. My excitement and my joy at being delivered was bubbling over in me. It was not more than a couple days after that that I found my best friend. And I told him about Christ. And I told him about my salvation. And I told him about the joy that I had in that salvation. He didn't respond. But I was full of joy. My circumstances hadn't changed. My mother was still an alcoholic. My stepfather was still abusive, but like the people in Samaria, I had been healed, and I had great joy. What was your salvation like? Was there joy at being saved? I imagine there was. How did that joy express itself? Did you find your joys present even in difficult circumstances? What about now? Are you joyful in your salvation? Are you joyful to see God working in your life? And in the lives of others. Are you something less than joyful now? 
Why might that be? So that's joy and deliverance. Let's talk now about joy and judgment. And that seems unlikely when you think about it. I mean, joy in God's judgment? How can one have joy when the reason for joy is God judging? Psalm 96. Psalm similar to Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Lots of joy there. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The psalmist here declares that there is joy in God judging the earth, judging all people. The psalmist psalmist exults in his deliverance, his salvation, but we see that the psalmist was rejoicing that God was bringing justice to the enemy of Israel and to the wicked that opposed Israel and opposed God. There is joy that God brings deliverance to his people from their enemies. That deliverance demonstrates God's power to deliver, as the psalmist notes. And yes, God's people can shout in praise and song and do so joyfully, for God will destroy his enemies and our enemies. The Wednesday Grace Group just finished a study of Revelation. In chapters 19 and 20, we learn that Christ will return and destroy with a word all of those on the earth that had opposed him. We also learn, well, let me quote from Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they, he, what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found and written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we're not talking here about the very American cultural idea about the bad guys getting their comeuppance. Ah, the bad guy got killed. He's dead now. That's the way it should be. It's justice. It's not what we're talking about here. The comeuppance for those who have rejected Christ is the second death. 
The joy the psalmist expressed in Psalm 96 is a certain knowledge that God will judge sin and those who reject him so that sin will no longer exist and that there will come a time that death itself will no longer exist. In 1 Corinthians, Paul asks rhetorically of death, O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The Revelation passage says that death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. There is joy that God judges, that he judges sin once and for all, because that too is part of our deliverance. No more sinners, no more sin, no more death. Reason to shout and sing. The joy for us is primarily future, but the knowledge of the promise of judgment is present. Like the psalmist, we rejoice that God will judge the earth. We rejoice in this deliverance. And this joy leads to a realization. In the Revelation passage, we hear that all people will be judged for what they have done. Those people are those who have not believed. Believers, you and I, are not subject to that judgment. We are not subject to the second death because we have believed and trusted in the grace of Christ. In his book, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer said this. Paul refers to the fact that we must all appear before Christ's judgment seat as the terror of the Lord. And well, he might. Jesus, the Lord, like his father, is holy and pure, and we are neither. We live under his eye. He knows our secrets. And on judgment day, the whole of our past life will be played back, as it were, before him and brought under review. If we know ourselves at all, we know that we are not fit fit to face him. What are we to do? The New Testament answer is call on the coming judge to be your present Savior. As judge, he is the law, but as Savior, he is the gospel. Run from him now, and you will meet him as judge then and without hope. Seek him now, and you will find him, and you will then discover that you are looking forward to that future meeting with joy, knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the final judgment... We will rejoice at the death of sin and at our final completed redemption. This also is deliverance. This also is our joy. And then, join trouble. The New Testament contains 13 letters from the Apostle Paul. Nine of those letters are written to churches, local fellowships, Three of the letters are written to uh, local pastors, local elders. Two to Timothy, one to Titus. And one letter he writes is to a personal friend, a fellow named Philemon. In each of the letters, except the one to Galatians, Paul gives warm greetings. In most cases, thanking God for the recipients and praying for them. Even in Galatians, Paul is deeply concerned about them because he sees that they may be trying to believe what he calls another gospel. But then you get to the letter to James. The letter from James is not warm. It's rather harsh. And even in the beginning of the letter, he doesn't say things like grace and peace to you like Paul most often does. He just says greetings. And then he talks about trials and an unexpected form of joy. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Greek word for testing there does not indicate uh, a pass-fail kind of testing. Rather, it's an examination to see the development of one's faith. It's not so God will know a believer's faith. He knows. It's so that you will know, that I will know. The Greek word for meet, when he says, when you meet various trials, means to run into or fall into or to encounter. A little like falling into a hole. That describes well what coming into a trial is like. Usually trials surprise us. Now, we may see a trial coming. We may realize that some bad decisions we've made are going to cause a trial to come. But even so, we're not usually prepared for it. We don't plan for trials. We don't plan for trouble. We don't plan for personal financial collapse or divorce or flat tires. I had three flat tires one day in the space of nine hours. Our children, we don't plan for our children to leave the counsel of the Lord. We don't plan for a slipping on ice and breaking your elbow, my elbow. We don't plan for cancer or a flooded basement or a chronic illness or the death of a loved one or for persecution. We don't plan for those things. But James says, when you do fall into a trial, prepared or not, expected or not, rejoice. New Living Translation says this well. It says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Not only is the trial coming, but so is joy. I suppose our first reaction to a trial of any kind is concern or worry or pain. I think James wants us to see perhaps that the second reaction to a trial should be joy because of how God will use that trial so that you can see your faith and that the trial will produce steadfastness. A word that means endurance or fortitude or perseverance or maturity. This maturity is not the I'm an adult now maturity. It's the maturity of growing into Christ-likeness. Peter says this same thing a little differently. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted, us to, his, granted to us his precious promises and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Trials are a way for you and I to become more like Christ, which is God's goal for us. This is also deliverance. If we take joy in our deliverance of salvation, if we can take joy in the deliverance of God's judgment, why can't we, why shouldn't we take joy joy in a trial that produces Christ-likeness in us? Now, this joy is not usually exuberant. And I'm not suggesting that we ignore the pain or try to pretend that the trial does not hurt or pretend that the trial is not happening. We're not going to break out into joyous dancing and singing over three flat tires in a day. Yet God is using all of those flat tires to make me more like his son. Deliverance, make a joyful noise. 
joyful noise may include some tears. <coughs> Caleb and I had the opportunity to go see uh, Tom and Kathy McArdle and their son Tim this week. <coughs> you spent a long time. By the way, Tim is slowly improving. We ask that you keep praying for him. But we spent quite a bit of time with Tom and Kathy and a lot of talking. And I asked Kathy what her spirit was like, what, how she felt in her spirit. She said several things, but one thing that struck me was she said, I feel like I know more about how God loves me in going through this. And she said it with a smile and a tear. I would suggest to you that was joy. Joy in a trial. So, biblical joy. What is it exactly? Well, it's everything we've talked about up to now. But I think Paul gives us a good picture of biblical joy and why we are joyful. Not just why we should be joyful, but why we are joyful. Even if we don't feel much like singing. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we are enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by By his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul here in this passage talks about being justified. He talks about having access to his grace. He talks about the Holy Spirit, Christ's sacrifice for us, that we're saved from God's wrath, that we are enemies that have been reconciled. But these are just some of what each believer receives and has been given, having believed in Christ. What joy. This joy doesn't diminish sorrow or pain or seeks to try not to acknowledge it, but it overcomes sorrow and pain while in the middle of sorrow and pain. In this passage, Paul specifically gives us three reasons to rejoice. First, he says that we rejoice in the hope of God, of the glory of God. Think about that. Moses saw the backside of God. Isaiah, in a vision, was in God's temple, and he saw God's glory, and he knew he was a dead man. We're going to see God in his full glory, not obscured. And when we see him, it won't be, and we won't react in terror because we think we're going to die. We're going to see him in his full glory, in full fellowship, complete We will see and be in the presence of Almighty God. And it will be joyful. Secondly, Paul says that not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We've already talked about that. 
we rejoice in our sufferings because of the product of the suffering. Endurance, character, hope, being more like Christ. And then third, we rejoice that because though we were once enemies of God, we have reconciliation with God. We are no longer enemies, but we are friends of God and sons of da- and daughters of God, adopted into his eternal family. We are brothers and sisters of Christ, and we are heirs of God with Christ. <clears throat> you may say that uh, you don't feel joy today. I get that. You may say that you didn't feel much joy yesterday, and you certainly don't anticipate feeling any joy tomorrow. Biblical joy is not a feeling. Biblical joy is a condition based on what God has done for the ones to whom he has given the right to become his children by his grace. If you believe in Christ, you have this joy. It may not always express itself in exuberance, but many times it will. You have been delivered, and you will be delivered. If you want to feel this joy that is yours, read that passage again that we just read, Romans 5. Read all of Romans 8. Read passages like Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3. Read Revelation chapters 21 and 22 and so many others. Psalm 98 even. Take the time to thoughtfully consider everything God has done for you and is doing for you and you will do and will do for you and lose yourself in the blessings of life, both temporal and eternal, that the death and resurrection of Christ has offered you. <clears throat> I want to finish by reading a portion of an article written by a person whose name is, and I've lost her name already. Where did it go? Oh, here it is, Robbie Castleman. She's a professor emerita of theology and biblical studies at John Brown University. She begins the article by saying, quoting uh, G.K. Chesterton, who said, Joy was the small publicity of the pagans, which was once the small publicity of pagans is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Ms. Castleman says this gigantic secret of the Christian needs to be let out of the bag today. Joy needs to break forth as a new rhythm of life in the middle of the mundane, in the mire of the world's ministry, and even in the midst of sinners. Now this gigantic joy has nothing to do with thin frivolity that attempts to make church fun. Gigantic joy is rooted in the fear of the Lord. Gigantic joy is not impervious to pain or inattentive to heartbreak. Gigantic joy doesn't laugh in the middle of Tsami's sorrow or broken promises or the irrevocable consequences of sinful rebellion. What gigantic joy does is give the Christian a bottomless pool of hope that allows the Christian the energy and steadfastness to not grow weary in well-doing. This kind of joy is a secret of being able to face sin and sorrow honestly and still end the day singing the doxology. That's the song the world needs to hear today. Maybe joy is still a gigantic secret because Christians reserve the doxology, quote-unquote, for the part of the church service after the collection of tithes and offerings, sometimes given begrudgingly for church bill paying, with little thought of the God from whom... All blessings flow. The self-sufficiency of managing our own happiness has muted the doxology of the church. And the world just can't hear it. Joy is why hope can smile. Doxology, the giving of glorious thanksgiving, joy's best expression of gratitude, is the most countercultural voice that must be heard in a world filled with a cacophony of complaint. What would happen today? 
this week, this semester, this year, this lifetime. If Christians were truly grateful and said so, how would our family gatherings, boardrooms, faculty meetings, shopping malls, parks, highways, neighborhoods, and mission fields be transformed by gratitude expressed with joy? How would the voice of the church be heard as a herald of the kingdom's coming if we remembered that it is a wedding feast? Would the world turn its head and begin to listen if Christians began to catch the rhythm of eternal shalom by dancing and singing and drinking and feasting and actually enjoying ourselves, even in public? Would the sinner, the sorrowful, the sojourner, the cynic, the bored to death and the sick of life take notice of a joy so gigantic that it couldn't fail to love them. If we did, maybe they would catch the rhythm of the kingdom and in the middle of a hurting world share our gigantic secret and join our first and final song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Be joyful at all the ways that God has delivered you, and especially in the deliverance of your salvation. Let the joy out. Repeat the sounding joy. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us so much to be joyful about and to be joyful for. And we confess, Lord, that sometimes we tend to pat down that joy. I ask, Father, that you would fill our hearts with the knowledge and the remembrance of what you've done for us, the deliverance that you've given us, and even in the midst of trials and sorrow, Father, that that joy would come out, even in the midst of tears and pain, the joy would come out. And particularly, Lord, when we think about the salvation you've given us, we pray, Lord, that the joy would come out and that we would share that joy with those around us. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Yeah.